Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We'll discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Everyone, welcome back to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. I'm here today with Liz Lewis, who is a content marketer and tech anthropologist, currently working at Miro as a corporate content lead and previously at Indeed as a senior content marketing manager. So Liz, uh, thanks for joining. Would you tell everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Hi. Wow. It's, that is really going back. Um, I would say, honestly, I was always so intrigued by cultural differences. I think like many anthropologists, perhaps I grew up in a place where I didn't necessarily felt like I fit in um, and was always very intrigued about sort of the the norms and beliefs and, and how people came together and formed communities. Um, and then candidly, once I got to college and I, I had the opportunity to study abroad twice, first in France and then in Ghana, and then, you know, really just got hooked on these deep dives and immersive cultural experiences um, as a lens, both to learn about the world, but also learn about um, my own sort of like cultural assumptions where I was from. And that is, that is, you know, the path that I've followed ever since. And so, you know, you took that all the way through to a PhD. Like I ask everybody, I'm curious to know, you know, if any of your programs talked about uh, applied anthropology or practicing in any sense. You know, goodness. Um, I certainly remember not as an undergraduate at all. When I was an undergrad, um, it was very much focused on traditional anthropology, which, you know, potentially was was just... um, part and parcel with the time that I was an undergraduate. This was 20 years ago. And um, in my master's program, there was a bit more discussion about practicing anthropology, um, but it was still viewed as, you know, kind of an outlier. Um, it certainly wasn't the goal. Um, the goal was always very traditional, theoretical academic anthropology, where you are using ethnographic methods to further ethnographic um, theoretical developments. And um, which is, you know, great. That's what pulled me into anthropology to start. When I was getting my PhD, um, you know, around that time, it was right after the Great Recession. And I think there was a more awareness that the labor market in general was precarious. There was um, a bit more talk, um, chatter on social media, for instance, about precarity in the academic job market, certainly, but it still wasn't part of a broader systematic discussion in my program, at least. And um, 
I would say I had to seek that out myself. Um, some of it was intentional, you know, back in the day using Facebook groups and Twitter and, and I don't know, connecting with members of the American Anthropological Association or the Society for Medical Anthropology, where I was really active in grad school, um, who were doing more applied work. Um, but again, that was a small number. And then, uh, you know, really, I think what got me into it, I was telling someone this recently, I happened upon a meetup group in Austin, where I live, for applied anthropologists. And looking back, I have no idea where this came from. It disbanded shortly after the two meetings that I happened to attend. Um, but it was just enough to plug me into this network. And that honestly made all the difference. And I would absolutely not be in the role that I'm in now or in the career that I'm in now had I not gone to those two meetings, you know, a decade plus ago. And so in those meetings, what kind of roles were being discussed? I mean, and I should say, you know, couch that in the fact that we know that Austin is, you know, a big tech sector. Correct. Um, and it's funny because this was, I don't remember precisely when these, you know, I say these were meetings. One of them was at, it was at a cafe and I don't remember the second one. And then I went out to lunch at a coffee shop with one of the women from it and it kind of spiraled from there. But there was, there was interest um, from a group of anthropologists at Texas State University, which is about half an hour south of Austin, in starting an applied anthropology program, which has since happened. And I've continued to collaborate with those folks on various projects and conferences over the years. Um, so there was that contingent. And then I want to say there was one person who was working in cybersecurity and he was sort of the nominal tech person at the time. Um, I don't remember his name. I think he was one of the founders of this group. That is the extent of my memory. Um, and then there was another woman who was very active who worked in program evaluation. And she was, at least at the time, um, running her own consultant shop where she would work primarily with nonprofit groups, um, but then a bit more over the years with um, you know smaller startups and whatnot, evaluating their programs and doing you know consulting of different shapes and sizes. And at the time, most of the other people who, you know, who I connected with th through this group were like me. They were, they were graduate students who weren't sure that they didn't want to pursue a traditional academic anthropology career, but they also weren't sure that they did. Um, and so I think it was just one of those really fortuitous moments where I was in the right place at the right time and then happened to be in a city that then exploded as a tech hub, hub. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the journey from there to what you've been doing in content. Yeah, well, it, it's funny. Um, I, I, was, I was thinking about this recently because I was invited to go back to my, my PhD department and participate on a panel about career paths outside of academia. And I realized that actually what put me on this path was my second year of my PhD program and um, the Society for Cultural Anthropology was poised to move all of their content from a traditional print publication to an open access web format. Now, this, of course, to us now seems like obvious, right? Of course, you're going to put things online and, and you know, tag them with keywords and whatnot. 
Um, nobody's reading a print publication. And, but at the time it was like really quite contentious. And, um, honestly, I think I, I attended the session at the AAAs at the American Anthropological Association meeting in New Orleans. And I think it was as much of anything else as I didn't know what to do with myself. It was the first time at the conference. And, and I realized like, it was so interesting. And there was all this discussion of publishing and formats and audiences that I wasn't really familiar with, but I knew I liked. And so I got involved with that and it gave me a taste of online content, um, which really, I, I do think put me on the path to where I am now. So I, I got more involved with them. I was, um, I believe my title was contributing editor. There was a group of us and I, you know, I, I did this work. It was a volunteer role. I did it for several years um, with cultural anthropology. And of course they've emerged as, you know, in my view, really one of the pioneers with um, online publications, certainly in anthropology and have done like a really, a really fantastic job um, in my opinion. Um, I then got more involved with other sort of similar websites. I was really curious about this new um, new media um, and and sort of new these new opportunities to bring academic content to potentially non-academic audiences. So I started working for for writing for and editing for um, Somatosphere, which was a medical anthropology and science and technology studies online um, publication. Um, really interesting project, brought in people from universities all over the country, potentially all over the world. Um, really, really great people. And um, and so I started doing some freelance writing and editing for them. And then from there, started picking up additional freelance projects on the side. Now, I, I never, it never dawned on me that this is something that I could get paid to do. Right. I thought that if you wanted to write, you had to be a journalist, um, which, you know, not not unrelated is what I had wanted to do when I went to college. And then I saw the entire industry implode, um, pulled away from it and went to anthropology because we all know that's where the stability and the money is. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, th these are the things we think sometimes when we're 21, 22. And um, but all of this freelance writing really, it got me excited and it got me excited about creating content for different audiences and um, for about, and I, I started taking on freelance projects, mostly just for fun, um, some, some academic, some not. Um, and then as I started to really contemplate a transition away from academia, I, you know, like many people, was drawn initially to user experience research which is, I think, a great field. I'm friends with a lot of folks in UX. Um, every now and then I'm still like, oh, should I have been a UXR? Um, but I, I was having all these meetings, like coffee chats with UX researchers. And, and you know, I was interested in what they were doing. Um, but I remember one of them, a very wise woman who was also a PhD, um, although not an anthropologist, said to me, she said, you know, what if you just take a look at other possibilities in tech. Um, she suggested looking at her company, which turned out to be Indeed, which was where I landed my first tech job. And, uh, and she said, you know, take a look. Think about what you really want to do. You could definitely 
do UX research, you have the skills, you have the background, you know, et cetera. Um, but make sure that's what you want to do. And I said, okay. And, you know, not thinking too much of it because I was fairly committed that UX research would be the best path for me. And it was, you know, one of those, again, sort of strange moments where I remember I went home and a few weeks later I saw this ad for really kind of a rogue team at Indeed um, of former journalists and artists and policy people. It was a small team, but it was really interesting, really, really diverse backgrounds. And they were looking for somebody who had research training, but could write about it for general audiences. So essentially somebody who could translate research, whether qualitative or quantitative, for mainstream audiences, for business leaders, for um, HR professionals. And I thought, well, this sounds really exciting. And that was my first job in tech. For anybody who doesn't yet understand what you do, can you describe the practice of content marketing? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, a lot of people that I work with have a background in journalism. So it's, it's basically writing public-facing content, um, often with a journalistic feel, um, to help build brand awareness around a product or a company, to help sort of pull a reader in. And content marketing is something that, you know, we are, it's all around us, but for many people, myself included, if you're not working in the space, you might not even be thinking in terms of content marketing. So I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, I, you know, like small, but very passionate minority of folks decided that I had to get chickens for my house. Um, I was really into this idea. I'm still super into this. They are fantastic and um, very expensive. But, um, but, you know, so I bought this fancy coop, I put it together and I still get emails from them with newsletters and how to's and a veterinarian's guide to backyard hens and things like that. All of that is content marketing, right? You read it and you think, oh, this is very informative and this is very helpful. And this, you know, this is this is helping me become a better chicken person, right? Um, but in reality, what it's doing um, is really quite savvy. It's using research, using internal expertise, leveraging market knowledge to build um to build one status, to build a company's status as a trusted authority in a certain field. Um, And this is why I've bought so many products from this particular brand of chicken coops. Um, But, but, you know, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek example, but I think it's it's a really powerful example. Um, You know, content marketing also, my specialty is research-based thought leadership, right? So if a journalist, for instance, wants to know about certain topics related to the work that I do or related to, let's say, the future of work, right? Or when I was in Indeed, I did research on trends like workplace ghosting. Um, Well, you know, we became the go-to source for journalists who needed statistics, needed information about, you know, is it true that job seekers were suddenly just not showing up for interviews or blowing off their first day of work or what have you? Um, So that's also thought leadership. um, And that's also content marketing. Um, But again, like in my case, there's much more of a research focused, um, both qualitative through interviews, primarily or quantitative through surveys that I help um, design. Interesting. And so um, tell us a little bit more. I mean, it, it's somewhat clear how you bring the research into it, but you know, in the case of like ghosting, so would you go out and you would talk to 
presumably people who have ghosted or those who have been ghosted and try to understand the perspective? So it's interesting. And again, this is where, you know, I would say I'm not in a role that I would, where I would have envisioned myself. So I typically work really closely with, um, with, you know, a company's, our company's market research team, um, or alternatively with research agencies um, to design um, studies around a topic. So for instance, um, these might be, we might have a qualitative component where, for instance, there's um, a group of online participants and, you know, I would draft three questions to get you know, three to five sentences of, of participants' feedback about their experiences with ghosting, if they'd done it, how they feel about it, et cetera. Um, so that would be an example of more of the qualitative component. Um, and then for the quantitative, which again is not an area where I ever envisioned myself working, but I really enjoy, um, I'll do a lot of sort of discovery research, um, do background research on the topic, and then help build out survey questions that are designed, um, you know, around a clear research question or two, um, and really designed with the goal of building out narratives. Now, what's what's tricky with this is that in a standard kind of PR, like public relations survey, that might be really clickbaity. Like you're looking for big, splashy statistics. And what I do is, is kind of in the middle between a big, splashy survey and a sort of drier, more, more um, formal academic survey. I'm kind of in the middle. Um, and, and that's where, you know, if you look at you know, if you open the New York Times or you look at NPR, you will see these types of, of research surveys and research findings like from companies cited all over the place. Um, but again, you just have to know that you're looking for them. Can you share how you actually get these picked up? Um, I mean, of course, you know, people could stumble across them from a search perspective, but are you then also engaged in outreach to get, um, you know, to get the press to pick these stories up? Yeah. So essentially how it works is I'll, you know, dream up a topic. Um, and this is a very academic exercise, right? Like what is the, what is the angle, right? Is sort of the journalistic way of asking it or for an academic, like what is the intervention, right? What, what can be said that has not been said before? How can we shift an argument or shift discussions about X, Y, or Z topic? Then I will, um, work with, stakeholders or partners to develop um, research. And then I will build out a story around this. Now, typically what happens next is I, I tend to work very closely with um, PR teams. I really like PR. Um, again, this is not a space where I ever would have envisioned myself at all. Um, but it's very interesting to me as a way to gain insight into how news happens and what counts as news and the sort of role of serendipity and zeitgeist and all of these other things. Um, and so I typically will work with PR teams to, um, you know, make sure that a story fits both with broader company narratives and goals in any general moment. You know, you don't want to say anything that's like contrary to what a company is trying to do or the brand they're trying to build. Um, and then PR teams will um, pitch these, um, sometimes it's just, you know, I'll write up a list of 
five high-level findings, five bullet points that I think might be particularly engaging for for you know readers um, or for journalists. Um, and then you know those will get pitched to journalists who you know then pick them up. And, and what I've found, or don't, right? Sometimes they don't. Um, what I have found is that when you have research that is particularly needed, um, where you really kind of hit that sweet spot of identifying something that no one else has done yet, um, then the content and the research ends up taking on a life of its own, which is really exciting. So like I've worked on projects where initially, you know, it's kind of slow and maybe some some smaller news sites might pick it up. And then over time, it would become the like go-to source for much bigger news outlets um, like the BBC or, you know, Washington Post or NPR or something like that, um, which to me is extremely exciting. Um, and, you know, my name's nowhere near any of this, but I know and I love that. So, And so how do you balance the need here to really provide value to, you know, sort of the everyday reader of the article? versus the need of the organization to probably also want to get this picked up from a PR perspective? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I feel very strongly about um, writing, writing with integrity um, and writing research-based content with integrity, which is something that is, is difficult to do. And one of the things that I've noticed um, in the know, four and a half or so years I've been doing this work is that um, there is an art to accurately reflecting research findings um, in content, right? That are then in turn, hopefully reflected accurately in, you know, news content or what have you. Um, and so I think like, it's all about, you know, making sure there is clear alignment between a business's brand, um, you know, how, how they are showing themselves in the world, how they want to show up in the world and their priorities and the content that, um, that I'm making. And, you know, in marketing, we talk about different funnels, right? And I am very focused on what's called top of funnel marketing. So building broad awareness about the company, building broad awareness about the brand. Um, and if you think about it, there are, you know, there's so many brands out there that that do this type of work in very different ways. Um, and, you know, in so doing, position themselves as authorities on a particular topic. And, um, you know, and I'm happy to give examples beyond the chicken coop one. Um, but, you know, a lot of tech companies do this. Slack does it. Microsoft um, does it, they have a, a blog with like really informative and useful studies and insights, um, that happen to be, you know, from a massive tech company. So how do you see the space shifting, you know, in a increasingly, you know, in a world of like natural language generation and what's about to be an absolute proliferation of content, you know, how do you see yourself standing out? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll start by saying I personally think there's way too much content out there. Um, you know, more is not more. And we've 
we've all seen the potential for misinformation, right? Um, and, and and there's a lot to be said for that, you know, and for being really mindful of that. I, I think one of the things that makes me most nervous about, um, you know, like AI and content generation isn't so much that like, oh, you know, the the programs are going to replace me. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not too worried about that. I can pivot. People can pivot. Things adapt. You always kind of need the human element as well. But I do think that it is, there, there are real dangers to misrepresenting data um, and misrepresenting how people describe themselves on the ground, um, you know, in qualitative interviews or in even like stats. I mean, I've seen some really horrifying misrepresentations. Horrifying. I think they're horrifying. They're the stakes are not that bad, but you know, really egregious. I would say um, misrepresentations of survey data, for instance, um, even by like you know trained content creators, trained journalists. And I've I've asked around. I've asked colleagues about this. Like, hey, do you see this too? And everyone's like, oh yeah. So <laughs> so you know, I mean, I can only imagine if you know really diligent, you know, super smart, talented, highly educated um, humans still make these mistakes and we all make mistakes. I am not sold that a non-human is going to do this any better. And in fact, I think there's a lot of risk for it to be done worse. Do you see any opportunity though to use the tools? And I'm curious about it, but I haven't explored this in depth yet. Um, there's been a lot of chatter among uh, coworkers about like, oh, I put something in chat GPT today and you'll never guess what they said. And um, I haven't done it, but it's been, um, it's certainly on people's minds. Where else do you see, you know, this going? And I'm curious, you know, do you see another future state of moving beyond just sort of publishing on the web and, you know, trying to get this picked up, you know, by, by the press. Is there any like, you know, in your space, is there any discussions about what is next? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of talk about, um, there's a lot of talk about, about different ways to create content, right? So, you know, podcasts, obviously video, um, newer forms of social media like TikTok. And, and and what I think is really interesting is shifts in attention spans and, and, and thinking about that and attention and ways of engaging, right? And this is often sort of discussed, I think, in everyday language of like, oh, people don't pay attention anymore. Nobody reads books anymore, things like that. Um, but, but that's too, that's, that's too superficial. That's not, to me, that's sort of looking at individual manifestations of like a large scale structural shift, um, which is very interesting to me. And so, you know, I think personally, there's a lot of, there's, I am not, um, I'm not like a video person, right? Um, like I would much rather listen to something on a walk or read it, um, with my coffee or what have you. But I understand that this has to do with my learning styles and preferences. And I do think that there's a tremendous opportunity to produce content that is more inclusive of very different learning styles and preferences. And that I do see as a really, really powerful um, shift. So in terms of those, are you primarily text-based today or are you working in any of the other content spaces? Currently, yes. But a lot of what I also do is kind of um like broader strategy about content ideas and particularly like research-based content ideas that could you know 
in theory, if we use people who have skills that I do not have, um, be adapted for other forms of content. Like this is when, you know, I sort of tap into my, um, uh, like, course design and instruction classes in, in graduate school, where I I really do think that there's a tremendous benefit to reaching people um, in different formats. I, I think it's really, really powerful. I think people are able to gain different types of information and, and, and different types of engagement um, when using content in different ways. And um, so, I mean, I, I absolutely see that as an opportunity and also not an either or, you know, like, like if something is in video, that doesn't mean it can't also be text as well, right? Or have um, like corollary content that is text-based. So, or, you know, highly visual, like text, what does that even mean, right? It could also be like, there. there's so much potential for like really highly visual, um, like data assets, right? And design assets that also connect with people in different ways. Yeah, speaking of that, have you found anything interesting with, um, I'll just use an infographic as an example, with like turning any of your findings into something like that? And, you know, did, do they get picked up, you know, from a content perspective more than other assets, if you will? Hmm. This is an interesting question. I mean, I will say one of the things that I have to do today before I close my laptop is put together uh, a request for data data visualization assets for a survey that I ran. So yes, um, I think I wouldn't necessarily say they, those are the numbers that get picked up. Um, but I, because I think the journalists, like they might pull somebody in, right? Like, I think that, that those, um, the like infographics, I mean, I, I see this in my own content consumption. Um, they're really good at catching people's um, whether, you know, in the New York Times or on LinkedIn or where have you. Um, but I think that like, once you catch their eye, you can really unpack a lot more. Um, but I do think that like, I mean, by and large, I think we live in a highly visual world. We are on our phones all the time. And like, you know, if you have something, if you're able to distill something that would have been in two paragraphs and really put like the highlights, like the TLDR and a couple of really easy to engage charts or graphs, like people like that. And I think that's okay. Yeah, um, there's lots of ways to consume, produce and consume content and they all have their fit. So if anybody wanted to get into this space, which is, you know, pretty unique, we don't hear many people talking about it. How would you recommend they, they sort of... Uh, you know, go about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is to, I was just having this conversation with someone. I think the first step is to kind of try out um, some freelance writing. And for, you know, for an anthropologist, there are a lot of options to create content that kind of bridges at the gap again. Like it's not fully academic, but it's not fully um, just, you know, junk. And so trying out, you know, trying out some, some pitch ideas, pitching some articles, pitching some ideas, reaching out to, to some of these websites or blogs or web publications, um, you know, related to, to the discipline or a similar discipline um, to see if you like it. And, you know, also knowing that your first few, the first few article pitches that you come up with are probably going to be quite bad. And that's okay. It's just part of the process. Um, and, and so I would, I would say that, you know, that's one um, to see if you like it. And 
I think another thing is, um, you know, starting to learn the language of corporate, and this this applies not just to content marketing, right? But I think that starting to learn the language of, um, you know, corporate spaces, tech spaces, whatever the kind of sector that you're thinking about um, is really imperative. And, and, you know, the good thing is that as anthropologists, this is a skill that we're taught. Um, we are taught to build rapport. We are taught to learn how to connect with people, you know, on the ground and wherever they are, whether that's, you know, in a field site in the United States, in a clinic, in, you know, a village, like any number of places, right? That's part of the task. And so use that same mindset um, in your own sort of career exploration. And, and, and I find that to be invaluable. Like I really do, you know, like spend a lot of time listening um, and play around to see, because it is a very different sort of cultural space. Um, but it is a cultural space nonetheless with its own sort of discourses and patterns and vocabulary. And you can learn it, you know, like you can learn it and, uh, and see if you like it. And if you don't, that's okay too. Well, Liz, thanks uh, for taking the time. If anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where's a good place to find you? Yeah, absolutely. Look me up on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out, send me a message or connect. I am uh, Liz Lewis, PhD. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.